Welcome to the newly cleansed and refreshed In The Game podcast, where we invite you to transform your dreams into reality. Every week, we aim to touch, move, and inspire you to new possibilities for your life. My name is Sarah Maxwell, and is it really time for me to now intro my own show? Heck no! Bring in the Aussie talent to get it done. With their groundbreaking first season as The Nat and Sarah Show, the foundation has been laid for a life of manifesting your dreams. Join us as we delve into the nuts and bolts of what it really takes to bring those dream boards into reality. It's time to dust off your dreams and get back in the game of life. Are you a member of the community? Head to Facebook and search In The Game Podcast to download your three-step journal to begin the workshop-style teachings and gain exclusive access to your hosts and featured guests. Get ready to take action on your possibility. Today, we continue the conversation with a man who is full of shit. Don't get mad, mom. I know I'm swearing, but Mark Bala is actually the toilet warrior, and he's been advocating and changing the story about sanitation worldwide. In 2013, he founded the not-for-profit We Can't Wait. He then joined forces with Rotary and began using his business connections to Mumbai to change the reality for girls in that region and then that country as a whole. Did you know that 1.4 million schools in India, that's a lot, 400,000 of them don't even have toilets? And the schools that do have toilets don't have separate ones for girls? So why does this matter so much? And this is really the question that I love that Mark has really brought to the surface, that 25% of girls in India drop out and skip school when they reach puberty. When their menstruation begins, it's just too much to go to school and be humiliated. Many of these girls' homes also don't have toilets. So after holding their bodily functions in all day, their desperate attempts to go to the bathroom result in 50% of sexual assaults occurring while these innocent girls are seeking a quiet place to do their business. So if you want to dive deeper into this reality, because that's happening, this stuff is happening right now before our eyes. Mark's book, The Toilet Warrior, is what really got me excited, or I don't know if excited is the right word, but passionate. And you can also Google his his TEDx talk, and he will really go through some of this in a beautiful way. So as sanitation goals worldwide continue to not be met, this linguist and global supply chain expert from Melbourne took it on. So thanks to Mark, he is proving the truth of his own TEDx quote, that children are the most spectacular agents for lasting change. So Mark, thank you. You're popping off the book that I read and now it's the real you. So thank you for being with us. Thanks so much for having me here today, Sarah. It's, uh, I love the introduction. Uh, I have to ask if I can use that myself. Oh. I, I talk a lot of shit, as I mentioned to you earlier, but I hadn't thought of introducing myself that way previously. And oh, once again, I will apologies send that to straight to you. Great. And apologies to your mum too. Oh, yeah, exactly. Mum. And warn her. Mum's her, gotten but... more rebellious over time, haven't you, mum? <laughs> so... Um, I will send that to you because I think when I'm, I was joking to some friends that my gift is I'm an uplifter and all that I said was true. And I feel that we should start every dinner party by introducing each other like that. So, <laughs> but Mark, 
here's the thing. As I read a little deeper into your background, I was super curious because you studied languages, you traveled extensively in your career before you took on being the toilet warrior. So what about your childhood led you to want to get, get outside of your birth country of Australia and explore? Well, look, I was actually born in the UK. My dad was born in Hungary. My mum was born in Australia. And they met in Australia, then went to the UK. So I, I kind of started traveling before I was even born to some extent. And then within three months of being born, we were we were on the road. We went to the US for a few months. And then I was in Australia. And, and as a child, we traveled a lot. My dad worked overseas and uh, and also just liked to have international family experiences. So we went to Europe quite a bit. Uh, he took me to Thailand when I was about 12, 13, uh, and he started me uh, learning languages too. I started studying German when I was about nine, maybe even younger. And so he he sort of just instilled this idea of taking interest in everything beyond our shores uh, from the from the time I really from the time I was born. Yeah, wow, that's cool to hear actually because my we've travelled a lot with my five year old so. She's got some German in the the recesses of that brain of hers. So let's see if it manifests like it did for you. So can you remember the earliest memory that you can of that moment where maybe you said to your parents, this is what I want to be when I grow up? Can you remember any of that? Look, coming from a family of Eastern European heritage, my father's side, Mm -hmm. uh, he and his parents arrived here not long after the war. Mm. Uh, Second World War, and so there was a lot of pressure uh, to perform at the highest level. Uh, my dad was a doctor and a very successful, um, very highly regarded neurologist. Mm. And from my earliest memories are of my grandfather telling me that there were only two choices in life: one's to be a doctor, and the other's to be a lawyer. <laughs> Interesting. I didn't do either of those. Um, and uh, in fact, you know, it was uh, it wasn't all smooth sailing in the early days. But yeah, it. The, the idea of being something else never dawned on me until I worked out I wasn't going to get the marks in high school to get into one of those two courses. Uh, let let alone the fact that I, I don't think I've even thought about, but I would not have wanted to do either of those things. So, how did you deal with that when, in your family, that was success, and here the grades weren't there? Look, my. Uh, my school reports were hidden from my grandfather. And yeah. My father was my father was really frightened of him, and uh, so they were hidden from him. Uh, and when I got my uh, HSC results, my final results in school, uh, I had enough marks to get into a, a biological science course at La Trobe University. And uh, my, um, I guess you'd say my year twelve coordinator at school, uh, his response when he heard that was, "Well, nobody from the school's ever been to La Trobe University." We've seen as a bit of a negative, but Latrobe turned out to be a place that really uh, helped me change my thinking on what the future might look like. Because Latrobe was a bit of a a bit of a rebel among the universities in Melbourne at the time. You know, you had Melbourne and Monash were the established ones, and then you had Latrobe and Deakin as kind of these outliers. Uh, I think they've probably moved beyond that now. I look, it's a long time since I was in uni, but yeah. I think Latrobe Latrobe is probably now recognised as as a proper university. Uh, back right. then, I, it was. Certainly from the circles I was coming from, uh, it, it wasn't seen that way. But it turned out to be uh, look, a, a great place for me to go. Why? What did you get there that kind of got, because, you know, when I look at your life, it's like it sort of was guided 
And of course, sometimes it doesn't feel that way when, when you don't get the marks or whatever, but what did you get at Latrobe that sort of was pushing you in this direction? Well, apart from everything else, I was in a space that my father and my, well, my grandfather had actually died just before, but my father had no point of reference. Mm. So because he had no point of reference, I was going down my own path and he couldn't guide me along it. That was probably the, the first thing was I, I had no choice but to find my own path at that stage. Mm. Um, by chance, well, the only subject I did well in at high school was German. I had very good marks there. And in fact, I, for some reason, I also had a great accent and I won a scholarship uh, to study at the Goethe Institute in Germany for six months. And I won that in high school days and put it aside and forgot about it, but it was open-ended. And during my first year at university, I, I was sick for a few months. I actually had to have an operation on my leg and lying in, lying in the hospital bed, I thought, why am I studying science? I like languages. And so I decided to take up that scholarship and go to Germany to study in the second year of university. So I took a year off. And during that year, I, I met people from all over the world, from Latin America, from Africa, from, from all over Asia, kind of stepped outside my, my previous Anglo-European experience, mm-hmm. meeting, people from, meeting people from developing countries. Now, admittedly, they were wealthy people from developing countries, but they still had a very, very different life experience to anything that I'd even imagined. Um, and I decided when I was in Germany, that I wanted to learn other languages. And oh. I came away from Germany speaking pretty good Spanish uh, and good German. <laughs> and can you pinpoint why you were drawn? I'm, I'm quite curious. You see I'm asking lots of questions about this yep. because I also just am so drawn to people from other countries. So can you yep. can you pinpoint in yourself what what that's about and how that's continued to, like, move you on your path? I do a little bit of introspection about this stuff at times. And I, one thing I actually look back to now, going back to uh, primary school and early high school, I was bullied a bit. I was a late, a late bloomer and I was sort of pushed around a bit for being smaller than the other guys. Um, and I remember at once at one stage in high school, sort of midway through high school, I was standing at a traffic light ready to cross the road and a couple of, a couple of bigger boys from my year or a year older uh, were teasing a small kid, a Jewish boy here, you know, and he was Jewish, I could tell because he had the, the little skull cap on. Yeah. And they were teasing him and uh, grabbed his grabbed his skull cap or whatever they're called. And and I stood up to them, even though they were a lot bigger than me, I just stood up to them oh. and said, listen, guys, this isn't right. What are you doing there? And I think mm. I think that even back then there was this realisation about, about a, a general sense of an absolute right and absolute wrong in the world. And maybe, maybe this is sort of part of what led me down this humanitarian path that I've ended up going down is you know, way back then sort of realizing gee, it's, it's not right that some people are doing it so tough. Yeah, right. meeting, pe- meeting people from the developing world when I was studying in Germany, hearing about life in their countries. Like one guy who became very close friends was, was from El Salvador. His country was in a civil war at the time and his parents had sent him to Germany because they were afraid he was going to go up into the hills and, and fight with the guerrillas, and he probably would have. Um, through all these people, I came across Latin American political music. Uh, I was, look, I was in my late teens, early 20s. If you don't have a, uh, a left-wing political side to who you are at that time, you're in trouble, aren't you? Because I think, okay. I think at, at sort of 18 to 20 age, 
most people are probably more left than they are at mm. 55, 60. Mm, uh, but I think if you're starting off in that area at that age, it, it, it can drive some of your thinking later on. Oh, I just want to ask so many things. So you said something really interesting there about how we have more preponderance at those ages to um, be cause oriented, you know, like really fight for things. And you said, but somehow in our later life, we are less so. However, with you, that isn't the case. So how I would say yours is actually strengthened. Your life has become more aligned. It's become more focused in terms of helping others. What do you think it resides in you that had you, I call it going all in. What has you going all in for these girls in India in particular? So I'd say that uh, on that path from Mm. my late teens, early 20s to now in my late 50s, there were a couple of waves where I was perhaps a bit more conservative than I am now in that in that way but I still always had that that awareness of something being unfair uh, and for instance I owned my own business for a number of years I, previously I'd worked for for bosses who just were not nice people mm-hmm. and uh, in the years that I had my own business uh, manufacturing CDs and DVDs we employed a total of 15 people before we sold the business over a period of seven years and one left to have a baby one left to move home to New Zealand and no one else left in seven years. And I, that sort of was a bit of a sign of, of the you know, just treat people nicely mm. aspect to, to my way of looking at the world. And I think, I've, I think I've always approached life like that, even in my more conservative political days. Um, yeah. um, but then when I sold the business, I was invited by the people who bought it to join the board of an Australian-Indian joint venture that they were setting up manufacturing uh, DVDs and CDs in India for the, for the Bollywood market. Uh, it was still a good industry at the time. I'm glad I sold when I did because it would yeah. be a pretty crappy industry to be in at the moment. Mm-hmm. Apologies to your mum again. Crap's <laughs> okay. Crap's all right. Okay, it's a shitty industry in that case. <laughs> the rebel, I hear you. Uh, and... I was, uh, as much as I traveled a lot, I was quite nervous about India. I'd always heard, you know, everyone gets sick and it's not very safe and blah, blah, blah. But I went along, stayed in the nice hotels they put me in for these uh, these boardroom visits. Uh, but every time I start, I'd go, I'd just sort of venture out a little more and and I decided, you know, I want to learn a bit more about the country every time I go. And I've, I've been to India more than 40 times now. Wow. You know, but at that stage, it was four or five times a year. And I'd always add a couple of days here and there to do something new. <clears throat> and uh, I guess, look, this is leading to to the big the big aha moment in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, that, uh, on one of these visits, I'd, I had a couple of days to spare before the board meeting, and I thought I'd hop on a train and go into the centre of Mumbai for a look around. And while I was on the train, these these two young guys came up to me. Very crowded train. They came up to me and they said, "Where, where are you from?" And I said, "I'm Australian." And, I said, oh, Ricky Ponting, Shane won. And so we sort of talked about cricket for a bit. And, and then I started to find out about them. And they, they lived in a, a place in Mumbai called Dahavi, uh, which is one of the biggest slums in the world. Wow. Uh, they were both students at the University of Mumbai. Uh, I think one was studying economics. The other might have been studying pharmacy. I actually can't, I can't remember anymore. But uh, uh, they invited me to visit the the slum with them and uh, 
So I went along with them the next day and this place had like a million people living in an area of about 1.6 square kilometers, which uh, for context in Melbourne, that's about twice the size of Albert Park Lake. For context elsewhere, you're going to have to look on a map. Uh, but it's small. It's not big. It's really. It's one of the most, if not the most crowded place in the world. Certainly one of the most crowded. Um, and so they they took me in there the next day, and we wandered around for a couple of hours, and and you know we saw where people lived and worked and shopped and played and so on. And then right at the end, they took me into a school. And I'm looking around the school, and I see lots of little boys and little girls and lots of teenage boys, but there were no teenage girls in the school, and I. Said, what's going on? Where are the teenage girls? And said, well, they all dropped out because there are no toilets in the school. And it was kind of this matter of fact thing as I said it. I said, oh, wow, okay. And uh, and that night, I was just sort of, I was sitting in the apartment where I was staying, uh, just thinking, well, what does that even mean? No toilets in school. And why would that make you drop out? And I was a bit naive to the, the broader implications at that time. And I'm just sort of, started to sort of look into it on Google and I, I didn't sleep that night. And it's just, I was very distressed about a lot of the stuff I read. You mentioned some of it in the introduction about girls and women being raped while looking for somewhere to go to the toilet. Because the, the thing is when girls and women in communities without toilets go to the toilet, they can't do what men and boys do, which is go up against a tree or a wall or whatever. They've got to go somewhere private where they can't be seen or heard, uh, which really means after dark. It really means totally insecure. It means a perfect place for them to be assaulted. So it, um, the numbers you mentioned earlier about how bad it is, yeah. it has improved. It has improved. Which is Which is great. It's, it's still a long way to that. go. A long, yeah. yeah, because at the time that you were talking about that in your TEDx talk, you were addressing the fact that until that time, the goals, they just kept pushing out those sanitation goals. And I thought that's good to hear that, that, yeah. that there's been movement. Yeah, look, it's still still a long way to go. And the thing is, you know, as, as I've learned more about this, I've realized India's India is a great example of this problem because of the scale. Mm. But there are other countries that have higher percentages of people facing these problems. Mm. Uh, like we have a, a project we're working on in Ethiopia at the moment. That's like 80% of people in Ethiopia don't have, outside uh, the major cities like Addis Ababa, uh, and there's one, one or two other major cities, but outside those, 80% don't have access to a toilet. And even when they do, it's pretty basic. It's uh, interesting, like, you're, where you've really decided to focus, um, because I had a, someone two days ago was just talking to me about, um, from a political standpoint, how there were no bathrooms in this um, certain political office. And then I recall, you know, back in civil rights days in the United States, like fighting for, you know, black women in particular, there was no toilets for blacks where they were working. And I'm like, wow, like toilets are sort of this baseline political. It's like, I don't know how you get the temperature of the climate almost like where things are at. So the fact that you've gone in and focused here around girls and being a man, I find that quite incredible. I do have to ask you why I feel that not every man would have noticed that there weren't girls there. Is that because you grew up with, see, do you have a, any thoughts around that? Yeah, my, my daughter was about 12, 13 at the time. Okay. Uh, just coming out of, of 
I finished primary school, moving into high school, and going through going through all that stuff that that girls go through when they're going through puberty, and the stuff that generally men would say, "I'm glad I don't have to go through that," but it's a part of a girl's life, part of a woman's life, and it's something that uh, that has historically been uh, an issue that's a taboo. It's not spoken about. Men don't talk about periods; they don't want to know. You know, it's a, and I, I remember having a thought at the time that you know if when, when my daughter's at that age, I wanted to ask my wife, is everything okay? Mm. And she'd say, yeah, everything's all right. And, you know, she's got access to, um, to pads and she's got access to uh, medical help if she needs it, should there be any problems and so on. So, yes, everything's okay. And her mum's there to help her and so on. And so that was kind of about as far as, really as far as a man usually would need to go in, in a developed country uh, unless there is a major medical problem which in most cases there isn't. Uh, if a father in a, in a community like this in India or Ethiopia or Indonesia or South Pacific, you name it, it's a problem. If they ask their wife, is everything okay? And the, the answer is often going to be no, it's absolutely horrible. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I mean, what do girls do if they've got their period and they're at school and there's nowhere to change their pads? And what do they do? It's, it's just no, like it's one thing for pre-adolescent kids to go outside, but adolescence, I mean, that, that's a complicated time of life. I mean, everyone needs their privacy at that time anyway. Um, so I guess sort of this, this sort of, wow, my daughter's, yeah, she's going through this stuff and um, I think it probably wasn't always fun. I don't know. I imagine it's not always fun at that age, but she's going through it and she was moving on and her friends are doing the same and she's going into high school excited about the future and she's doing a PhD now. You know, she's gone through university doing a PhD. And, um Whereas so many of these kids, they would be leaving at school at 12, 13, 14 and just out of the system. Now, the developing world is more complicated than toilets are the only reason girls drop out of school. But it is one of the major factors. Right. It, is a, it is a real factor in it. There are, there are other reasons like patriarchal societies where girls just aren't seen as important and this sort of stuff. So that stuff is... That's but, but, you know, I have to say this because you've got me really thinking now that because you talked about Western society too and I you really got me thinking that women like our periods our menstruation is very symbolic about um patriarch and inequalities and things because we've got the extremity if we think about how women are viewed and like that high rate of sexual assaults like what's going on with that then we bring that into the western culture and I think I have a I have three brothers and there's this great joke you know about like you said Oh, don't talk about pads. Like, oh, it's this big joke, you know? (laughs) And there's now these ads in Australia about women having their periods. It's really, it's like way more real. We are talking about periods. Get ready, Mark. So, so they're talking about period undies, right? And I was with a 40 something friend the other day. And I said, I really like those ads because it's a lot more realistic. It's like, it's not hidden. It's not pretending there's not a girl like, you know, jumping hurdles or something while she has her period. Like it's just some of the aches and pains, some of the challenges, right? You know what she said? Oh, it's just gone too far. Hasn't it? <laughs> like now look what we're showing on TV. And I was like, Oh, interesting. Okay. So this is triggering things for people, women, it's triggers men, it triggers boys. So sorry to like bring it back to a Western thing, but I think what you're doing is like really powerful because we can also take this conversation and realize the extremes. Like I think we have 
some we have some room to move here too. Yeah, and look, it's 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 very different now in Australia to what it was when I was growing up. That now it is at least it is spoken about. Mm. Uh, but yeah, look, I still think that most men are uncomfortable talking about periods. Most men are if their wife or partner or daughter or whatever says, "Can you go down to the, the chemist and buy some uh, some pads or tampons for me?" Yeah, they'd be they'd be saying, "Oh, look, I've actually. Can you go instead? I'll." Like I'll make dinner. Yeah, <laughs> so, right. Any excuse not to. Um, uh, and so an you, ad. Mark, how come you're not uncomfortable? Um, the first time I spoke about this whole issue of yes. toilets in schools and the impact on girls in in public um, was at a girls' school in Melbourne. Uh, the girls were 15, 16, 17 years old. And when I finished the talk, the, uh, the headmistress uh, called me up the next day and said, uh, the girls were really moved, but they were also shocked because a man who wasn't their doctor or their biology teacher said, period. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was uncomfortable talking about it. I was really nervous, but I just I thought, you know, it's just too important. This is fifty percent. This is fifty percent of the world that had this as part of their life, and none of us would be here if there weren't periods. Uh, and it, it's private, but it's not shameful. And I think this is oh, this is some, this is something, and it's so important to distinguish that it is a private thing. I mean, I saw a, um, uh, a like a cartoon about this where I just I'm trying to think of where it was where. No, it wasn't a cartoon, actually. This was a, a, a joke about some very fundamentalist religious views on, on uh, the Bible and how every word must be taken seriously. Mm. And uh, one of the things in there was how a man should not touch a woman who is in the time of her menstrual uncleanliness. Mm, okay. And... And the response to that by someone who was saying how ridiculous is, how do I find out? Do I ask a woman, are you having your period at the moment? And that's not going to go down well because that's private stuff. It's no one else's yeah. business. And uh, but it's but it's not oh, shameful. It's you just are private. just who knew we were going to talk about this, but <laughs> but we're just we're going to keep going because I actually interviewed a woman, um, Chinese herbal medicine doctor and she was talking about womb magic and I asked her I said you know tell me how to speak to because she spoke about in history how you know how what you just shared is this idea of don't touch a woman who's menstruating well tribal culture it was let's go in a tent with women that are menstruating because she's actually her wisest she's the most connected right now we need to like be near her because she's going to help us for it she's going to help Like she has wisdom that we need. So it's a very different context from a tribal perspective. So back to everyday household Australian life, I'm like, well, my five-year-old, if she gets any blood cut on her, she's screaming until she sees a Band-Aid. You know, it's just this like she has this fear of blood, right? So then anything to do with menstruation and period was like, if I tell her that that's blood, and that's happening. Like to me, that would evoke fear. So this woman, this amazing woman about womb magic, she taught me to tell my daughter about magic bloods. 
And I was like, wow, you know, here I am in Western culture, also tongue-tied, because before that I was just quiet about it. Hence where this idea around shame, but also when you said the word private, I was like, whoa, this is really interesting about private and why, because I actually had no words. Hmm. And then when she gave me some words, um, I was like, wow, I can talk to her about this. Matt, you know, kids understand the word magic. Mm-hmm. Um, but imagine if we started shifting this conversation now. Sorry, I got political because this is like baseline. These girls need a place where it's private yeah. and they're able to actually go to private, the bathroom. Private and clean. Private and clean. So it should be clean. Yeah. Tell really tell important. people some of like two of the biggest challenges you faced because you know oh great I'm going to get the girls toilets is that just sort of how it went or were there some challenges Mark? So well the first thing we worked out from the outset it's not just the girls who need the toilets it's everyone because uh-huh. uh, and obviously the girls are the girls are the ones who are most dramatically affected but the impact on boys not having them is terrible too because uh, mm-hmm. you know if you're in a if you're in an environment where there are no toilets it means that human waste is is out in the open in the environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're in a farming community, it ends up in the uh, in the water that's uh, that's growing the vegetables, and and it ends up in the drinking water as well. And people are sick all the time. So, you know, I visited a community in Cambodia where up to ten percent of the kids die before they're age five, uh, simply because of contaminated water, contaminated mainly by human waste. Wow. Uh, and even if they get through that, when they're at school, they often have they often have diarrhea. There's another one that we can talk about. Want to talk about diarrhea? So. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Another how do you, thing we don't like so to talk about. You, but how do you deal with diarrhea if there's no toilet? Boys, uh, that's the same for boys as it is for girls. That's just horrible. You know? And you're more likely to have it if there's no toilet. So it's this sort of never-ending cycle. Cycle. Which then leads to stunting of growth, which leads to difficulties learning and of course the girls uh, in addition to dealing with that and dealing with menstruation they also they don't drink water during the day in many cases because they're afraid they might have to urinate and they can't and they can't do that if there's no toilet because again unlike boys they can't go up against a wall or a tree particularly particularly adolescent girls and and uh, and women in the workplace and so they hold on all day or they don't and or they don't drink water during the day. And that affects your concentration. It affects your kidney health. It's, I've heard stories of eight-year-old girls having kidney dialysis yeah. in the developing world. I mean, this is the, the broader flow-on effects of this are just shocking. Yeah, and I'm glad you're talking about this because I thought about you when you described that slum, how big and busy and, and like packed it was. And this, as you walked along, there were, I'm sure there was about a hundred things that you might've been able to affect and, and impact, but you chose this. So when people hear this issue, why would you say this one is so important? I mean, sometimes at the moment, sometimes it can feel like there's so many things that we could help with that people just get overwhelmed and they don't help anything. So why this, why should people um, care about this and help this? Well, look, I mean, if you, that's, I don't know the exact wording, but there's a saying, educated girl, educated village. Mm. One of the, one of the um, burdens, if we might call it that, on women, particularly in the developing world, but also in the West, is that they are, uh, they are chosen by our societies as the, as the primary caregivers in, 
in families and in communities. And in a developing world, it's much more, uh, much more so than in the West. In, in developed countries, it's still predominant, but women are in, the, in developed countries are more able to have a, a more normal career path and so on. And a lot of that comes because they're educated. And when women are educated, they they uh, lift the the education opportunities of their children. They and particularly in the space in hygiene. I mean, you know, you learn to brush your teeth because your mum taught you how to brush your teeth. Mm-hmm. If you're growing up in an environment where there's no toilets and no proper running water, there are no toothbrushes either. And so, if no one's taught you to brush your teeth, you don't know how to do it. So this this mm-hmm. role of the the, the mum teaching you know, potty training their kids in in our community and uh, and um, teaching them about clipping their nails and washing their hands before they eat and so on. This is something we're all taught by our mums because our, mm. when we're two, three, four, five years old and learning this stuff, our dads are generally not home. I know it's an, it's a broad generalisation, but yeah, there but is there's funny. some truth to it. It's still uh, in the developing world, it's far more so like that. Yeah. Um, and so by having the women educated even just a little bit more about hygiene, they're already improving the future outcomes for their children. Mm. Uh, you educate them more about reading and writing, their children are more likely to stay in school for longer. And the again, girls staying in school longer, you know, they marry later, they have fewer kids, their kids are less likely to die in the first five years of their lives. And, and their lifetime income capacity goes up. Every extra year in school gives you an extra 5 to 10% lifetime earning capacity which means family incomes go up, which means community incomes go up, which means standard of living goes up. So educating women is just, educating girls and women is just common sense. I mean, you yeah. know, fam- families, families that have you know, two well-educated parents who are both in high-powered jobs, and they, they live pretty nice lifestyles in the West. Families that have, families that have a father who's um, shoveling up rubbish in the street in Mumbai and a mother who's looking after seven kids, their lifestyles is horrible at the other end of the scale. And it just, there are so many reasons for lifting women up in the developing world and in the West, but particularly in the developing world where they're still so far behind in, wow. in terms of education and income opportunities. Wow, that thank you for describing that flow on effect because it is really substantial. And just to round up this conversation, because I mean, I've gotten to read your book, The Toilet Warrior. And so I know a little bit of why this work is so rewarding, but I really, could you share with the listeners, if you had to make a plea for why why leave your comfortable job and start working feverishly on behalf of others, what would you tell us, Mark? What's, what are the rewards? What, what comes through that? I'm at the happiest time of my life. This is the most fulfilling thing I've ever done. You know, I, I had businesses, a couple of them over the years. I employed people. It was great. I, I traveled uh, often business class. I stayed in nice hotels, uh, had great family holidays and continued to do that as much as possible. But uh, giving up paid employment uh, in my mid-50s came with clear financial sacrifices. I mean, I, I'm comfortable. But, for instance, business class is a thing of the past, gone forever. The mm-hmm. five-star hotels are gone, three and two stars going to do, or Airbnb. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's cool. You know, the, these sacrifices are nothing compared with the, the personal sense of well-being I get from knowing that I'm making a difference in the world. I mean, it's, it's, 
it's the best job I've ever had by a mile. And it's an expensive job, believe me. All my trips to India, my 40 trips to India, the first 15 mm-hmm. were, were with 15, 20 were with the board before I left and then started traveling on my own for this. And they're all out of my own pocket. Uh, yeah. I saved a lot by staying with friends I made over there. So I don't stay in hotels in India anymore. I stay with friends. Um, and I, I traveled by train around India, you know, rather than take flights at times. And, um, I stayed in a couple of ashrams, you know, so going back to real basic sort of backpacking days, the stuff that I used to think was fun when I was 19, 20. I'm, I, I'm into it now as long as I can have a bit of comfort sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, look, it's uh, I've had maybe one of the most profound experiences I had was in a school we first visited uh, five years ago and the toilets and they had toilets, but like I went, I was taken by the headmaster to see the girls' toilets and I walked in and I walked straight out. The stench was horrendous. Mm. And I thought, no, no, i got to go in and film this. I'll send you a link to the film sometime. Got to go in and film this. So I walked around for a minute filming it and there was shit everywhere on the floor. The toilets were overflowing. It was just disgusting. I was very distressed when I came out and uh, I said to the people who had taken me there, we've got to do something about this. And they agreed. So we went back about a year later and I said to the headmaster, this time I want to film a commentary. And he said, I'm sorry, sir, you can't go in this time because there are too many snakes in the toilet. We were standing outside, me arguing him with him while the girls were going in and out, still using it as a toilet. So it was okay for these little girls from India to use as toilets full of snakes, but not okay for me as a, a man from Australia to, to go in and have a look. Oh. Um, we went back a year later and closed those toilets permanently, replaced them with um, some beautiful toilets. Again, I'll have to show you the most beautiful toilets I've ever seen in my life. If you oh. try to imagine that, I'll have to show you. It, it's, it's these toilet blocks um, oh. for boys and girls, about 32 cubicles altogether, plus some urinals and hand washing stations. And we had a, a maintenance and cleaning program built in and a, a water sanitation hygiene education program built in. And it was a very exciting day. And then a year later, this was in December 2019, I went back just to see how things were going and everything was in beautiful condition. I stood on the roof of the school and, and watched the kids just streaming in and out of these cubicles. Mm. And as we were leaving, and this I get a bit emotional about this, as we were leaving the school, uh, three girls, 15, 16, came running across the school grounds to me, stopped in front of me. And in India, uh, it's respectful to bend down and touch someone's shoes. So they all bent down to touch my shoes. I grabbed them by the arms and stood them up. I was uncomfortable with it. And they said, sir, with these toilets, you've changed our lives. Mm. <laughs> still, still goes down as one of the, one of the most profound experiences of my life. Just um, yeah, I was just just knowing it really does make a difference to to the people that we're trying to help. Mm. And uh, and you know, we've heard from some of the earlier projects we did four or five years ago of kids who had actually dropped out of school and then come back to the school system because there were toilets in the school of choice and have gone through to finish high school. You know, this is this is real stuff. That's, uh, yeah. yeah, and that. Thank you for sharing that story because those three girls in particular, you know, like real people, because sometimes I think we look at what we have to give up instead of what we're walking toward. Yeah. And that kind of difference um, is really beautiful. Mark, thank yeah. you for sharing these real stories and your, your commitment. I, I truly believe that when we hear stories like this, we see what's possible in our own lives. That's why I do this 
have these conversations, it really, really changes my life. So I'm a bit self-serving. And then I, I know that in the past I didn't get to record them. I was just having oh, okay. them. I just got wow. to have conversations with you. So wow. now to be able to share this with other people. So Mark, I look forward to, um, I believe that it gets somebody that needed to hear just that little bit, you know, when the fears come in, just that little bit to um, step out and make a difference. So Mark, thank yep. you so much for sharing your story. You're most welcome. We so appreciate you listening to the show. Don't forget to join the community on Facebook by searching In The Game Podcast. There you can download your three-step journal and participate in our weekly live video chats. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You've got to rate and review the show. And I know all the podcasts are always asking this. And in the past, I wasn't doing it. And the reason I wasn't doing it is because I actually didn't know how to do it. So... Open your podcast player and click on our show from your library, not the listen now. That's where I was going wrong in the past. So now that you know how to do it, when you go there, make sure you give us a five-star review. Five stars, five stars, five stars. And then click on write a review link to actually write a review so that you can tell other people that we're legit and even funny, maybe a bit serious. So if you want to recommend this to someone, you have to... Put your fingers on the keys and send us a review.